This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. And so what I want to do, I'm going to do, we're going to, we're going to read, I've only got four verses today, all right? So you would think that that would mean I'm going to keep it short, but uh, we got a lot of content, so you guys are going to have to listen really fast today. So first thing I want to do is if you all would stand back to your feet, we're going to read these passages, read this passage, and then I'm going to, I'm going to invite you guys, I'm just going to guide you through like a quick time of prayer, just for you all to kind of empty out the space in your head and ask the Lord to fill it with something specific. John chapter 17, we're going to be in verse 18 to 21. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Keep standing for a second, just... You would kind of close your eyes. Get alone with Jesus for just a just a second in your mind. I just want you to do something really, really simple. I want you to ask him just to begin giving you a, I mean, to speak into your heart about like what it is that he dreams for your life. What are his, what are divine expectations for your life? And then I want you just to simply respond to him by saying, Lord, I repent of how low my expectations are in comparison to yours. All right, next prayer. Just want you to ask the Lord to give you one thing right now in your mind. Just even as I'm preaching, as we're kind of sitting here with that, man, with the the prayer life of Jesus on our minds and hearts, to ask him to open up your heart to, to give you one impossible prayer to pray. One thing that you could not accomplish without him. Hey, Jesus, you know this is like one of my favorite things in the world is to stop and to reflect Father, on, uh, on the size of the God that I'm talking to. And Father, I, I just want to repent corporately right now, like on, on my own behalf and then just um, on behalf of everybody in here, every one of your saints, all the people that know you. And we just go ahead and say that our low expectations, Father, are, are the result and the fruit of bad theology, of an improper understanding of the size of the God that we're talking to. And so, Lord, I'm sorry for the picture that my small prayers often paint of who you are. I want to repent, Father, of like the image that my prayer life can often portray to a lost world. I want to repent of the way that the disunity that sometimes is evident in my heart, Father, has painted a really, really terrible misinterpretation of how good and how unified you are. I thank you. I thank you so much for the model of Trinitarian unity that you've given us. And that you didn't just say, reflect on it, appreciate it. You said, duplicate it. And if you called us to that, that could only be because you know that by your Spirit's power, you're making provision 
You're making provision for your people, for your church, for your bride to be one as you and your father are one. And so, Father, I say, like, even as I read these passages, there's part of me that thinks, ooh, that's far-fetched. Like, ooh, that's way too big. But, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. I believe you, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Father, I just pray that you will do a supernatural work that only you can do over the next little bit. As we're in this room, as we spend time in your word, as we spend time pursuing you, that you will do that thing that only you can do, where you take my expectations and you begin to amplify them. And you begin to expand them. And you begin to make them look more like a reflection of the God that I'm talking to. You're better than I think you are. You're better than my words are about to say. I love you. May I love you more by the end of this sermon. In your name, amen. You guys may be seated. Okay. All right, so I got, um, I got bad news and then worse news. Bad news is my favorite passage of Scripture, and so it would be really, really easy for me to go for a really long time. Worse news, the clock in the back is broke, so, like, this is about to get wild. <laughs> All right. So if anybody needs to go and, like, grab a pillow or something out in the hallway, feel free, because uh, I need you to get comfortable. Guys, I'm telling you, I, there is... When I talk about like, oh man, I love this chapter, like you don't understand. Like it, it is almost, does anybody have like that passage of scripture that when you're studying the word and you like don't have anything, like you're not going through a program or a plan and you just got to get to kind of pick where you're going in scripture, that it's hard for you not to always go back to that same passage? That's John 17 for me. I just, I love, I love this glimpse because it's almost like, like this is this moment where Jesus and the Father are like having this conversation in complete and utter intimacy, all right? Like you, you have this, it's like this, you get to look in on something. It almost feels as you're reading it like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have listened in. Like this is too close. This is too intimate. He's like, Father, man, I miss the glory I had with you before the world existed. He's like, hey, eternal life is just knowing you. Father, let them know that they've been sent just like I was sent. Let them know that they can literally walk in your love just like I walked in your love. Over and over, there's these moments where you're like, oh, that's intimate. But the beautiful thing is that not only is it, is it more than okay for us to get, to get to have a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus, it's also simultaneously an invitation for you to know the Father the way that Jesus knew the Father. This is eternal life that you believe in the one that he sent. So first thing you want to look at, John 17, I'm just going to walk right through these four verses because every one of these, every one of these is just like, I mean, has this beautiful moment, this kind of like climactic moment, all right? And so the first one in verse 18, okay, Jesus says that we are sent like he was sent. Okay, all right, that's, now you all didn't gasp. All right, And so that means you didn't hear what I said. Because I said, Jesus says to the Father, may they, that being you and me, may they know that they have been sent exactly the same way that I was sent. Jesus saying that. Okay, I heard two gasps. Good, we're getting there. We're getting there. I'll just keep repeating it until we get like 300. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But guys, this is beautiful because, because what that means is, when, when I reflect on this, I think, well, there's some things that I think about when I think about myself, I think of me differently than I think of Jesus because I talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus was eternity, right? Eternal life. 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before the foundations of the world, he established this plan of the gospel that was going to be carried out. So like there has been, there's never been a time when Jesus was not. And so I think about him like he's eternal life. And then he had this little 33-year interruption that we call his humanity. We call his incarnation. And then I think of me, and I'm like, well, but I've got this really clear, definitive beginning point, September 25th, 1983. And then I've had life. And then, you know, one day I'll get to live in heaven. But then I begin to read scripture, and I realize that the way that the word of God views my eternal life is not the way that I tend to view it. I view it on this line, and we've talked about this before, that eternal life, when it talks about it in Scripture, is less quantitative and more qualitative. It's not, it's not a measurement of time the way that you and I often interpret it. Eternal life literally means to share God-quality life, to share God's quality of life. And then he says these outlandish things in his word. All right, so Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I told you, anytime I preach, it's always my goal to send you on a biblical scavenger hunt, meaning... That my hope is that either I'll talk so fast that you can't quite keep up and that by the end you think, man, i got to go back through and see what he was talking about. And I'm going to put some scripture up here because my hope is that your Sunday afternoon plans are going to be ruined because you can't help but get into his word and see what his word says about you and about me and about his son. So the first thing I want to show you is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul Talking to this church in Philippi, he says something really audacious. He says, he's talking about the people who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. In verse 18 and 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. To kind of reinforce this in 2 Corinthians 5, it's beautiful because we had the passage that, that Andrew just read. I didn't realize he was going to read that today. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 is the one that he started with. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But then going on in verse 18, he says, he says All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors for Christ. All right, is anybody... Uh, Anybody ever watch any, like, really cool spy movies? Anybody love, love them some James Bond? Oh, yeah. All right. So I love, I love those moments where, like, in, in a James Bond movie, there's this, there's the, they're, like, running and fleeing. And it's like all they know they have to do is get to the embassy. You know what I'm talking about? Like, have you all seen these scenes? There's a movie, good guy running from the bad guy, and he just needs to get to the safe place. You know, like, he's got to get to the embassy. And when he gets to an embassy, that's, that's a place in another country that's so representative of the land that the person comes from that it literally counts as if it's that nation's property. So an American embassy, no matter where it is, when you're in an American embassy, you're suddenly on American soil. It's like classic tag from when you're a kid, you know, like... Mom's base. So, like, you're running. As long as you can get away from your sister fast enough, it's like, dude, I got her. 
mom's base. It's like suddenly absolute and complete immunity. Well, that's what this is talking about. Like, the, guys, now it's not just that like we, oh, we have an embassy where we can go and it's heaven where we can get to a safe place. No, 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 no. You're the embassy. Do you see this? Like, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You and I, we're like walking embassies. Everywhere we go, we're representative of the land we're from. Put on here this phrase, celestial patriotism, just because that sounds really, really freaking cool. All right, but uh, celestial patriotism. But what I'm saying is, guys, if you're going to be patriotic some, about something, don't waste it on this country. You've got a better citizenship. Now, that's not to say anything against America. I love the United States of America. I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, at the beach, all right? 15 years old, I go from the beach to the bluegrass. And everyone asked me the same thing. Why did you do that? Why would you leave Florida and come to Kentucky? All my friends back home, I remember they told me they had a list. There were three things. Three things I remember being warned about in Kentucky, okay? You don't have to take detailed notes about this. This is not going to be significant in your biblical scavenger hunt lady later. But um, there are three things. One, they don't wear shoes, okay? Kentuckians don't wear shoes. If you want to continue wearing your shoes, um, then don't move to Kentucky. Two, they date their sisters. I love my sister. She's a fantastic woman of God. We're not there, you know? And so... <laughs> So I was, that one, that one threw me off. And I remember the third thing. The third thing, somebody told me, there's a rumor going around. Rumor going around, there are more cows than people in Kentucky. True story, Google it. All right, so the, the more cows than people. And I remember being like, oh, man, what am I getting into? And then I go to East Jessamine High School, day one. East Jess, yeah, Jessamine County, what, what? Go Jags. All right, so. EJHS, class of 2002. So I, I pull in, pull in, I'm on the bus. You know, I've just moved. We move in the middle of like a winter storm. I've never really seen those before in Florida. So we're driving in. It's freezing cold. I'm driving on the bus, and we go down. There's this long drive, long drive to get to East Jessamine High School. It's out in the middle of like a big kind of field area. And I look to the right, and there they are. Cows everywhere. And I remember the first thought that went through my head was, it's all true. It's all true. Now, I say that to tell you, quickly, quickly, I fell in love with the state of Kentucky. I told my friends back home, look, only about half of the rumors are true. <laughs> you know, just kidding, just kidding. But, like, I fell in love with Kentucky. I mean, to the point where, like, it captured my heart that I'm almost ashamed of the fact that I grew up at the beach because I want to be, like, I love Kentucky. And now my heritage is here. Grandparents on one side from eastern Kentucky, the other one's from Madison County. I go back to, my Kentucky roots go all the way back to Daniel Boone, apparently is what my family tells me. Don't, don't search my ancestry because I'm not sure if that's actually true, but that's what they've told me, all right? So, like, I've got Kentucky in the veins, and I love my Kentucky heritage, but I'm not really from here. I love it like a transplant, and I love it different probably than somebody that's from here. And I, I love this state, and I believe... I feel like the Lord put something in my heart as a young man to wake up faith that revival was going to happen in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and that God had sent me here to hopefully to get to have a front row seat of the work that he was going to do. And so I love Kentucky, but I, I love it differently than somebody born here, you know? 
I'm reminded of the story of a man named Daniel. I've been doing this. Um, a lot of people in this room have been getting to participate in what it means to do a, a Daniel fast, which is how the Lord kind of asked him to set himself apart, to sanctify himself, to consecrate himself, some words we're going to get to here in a little bit, to make him different than the people around him. He was kidnapped, likely turned into a eunuch by this nation of Babylon. And then they wanted to train him in the Babylonian ways. They bring him to this land that wasn't his own. And you know what he does? He lives in such a way as to bless the nation where he was enslaved to. To bless the nation that held him captive. And he did, and he lived so much to their blessing that they thrived because of the fact that one kid at 15 who was kidnapped came in with a different heart than the heart that was beating in the Babylonians. Because my love for the United States of America is not like Daniel's love for Israel. It's like Daniel's love for Babylon. Because my citizenship is in heaven. And we're a different kind of people. We're a transplanted people. We're people who have a citizenship that's not here. We're walking embassies of the place we're from. Now, love your nation, love your state, absolutely. But love them the way that Daniel loved Babylon. Desire their good, but recognize all the while you're not from here. I don't care where your birth certificate says you're born. Your rebirth certificate says something different. And we're going to always listen to that one. Because we've been sent into the world. Now, one thing that's really important here, when it says that you've been sent into the world, that's not, the world doesn't mean earth. All right, we think, like, oh, I've been sent to the world. Like, okay, I've been sent to this sphere that we know of as a place that has all the nations on it, like the earth. But when it says you've been sent into the world, the world there means something very different. That word kind of encapsulates, um, it, it's more than just a physical place. It's more kind of a spiritual reality. So you've been sent not just to the place where you live. You've been sent into the world, the world system. The world here, I've got this on the screen, the world here means more than the physical earth. It's an inherent rebellion against God. Our constant trending towards opposition to him before we know Jesus. So when it says you've been sent into the world, all right, he's saying, I'm not sending you to the saints. I'm not sending you to live up on a mountain at some cloister. You're not going to go and hide away in a monastery. Like, I'm sending you to the world the same way that Jesus was incarnational and came down and got his hands dirty and didn't just love people, but love people to the point where he interceded for them, stood in the gap, took their sin from them, died the death they should have died, and got up from a grave that they would have been permanently stuck in. That's what you and I are called to be. We're called to be the kind of people that don't just see the cross and appreciate it, but we ask the Lord for what it looks like for us to be the kind of people that would reenact that kind of love to a lost world. Which leads us to verse 19. In verse 19, I love the way he words this. All right, oh, I've lost my place in John 17. Hold on here. In John 17, verse 19, he says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth consecrate myself that they may be sanctified. I love this because uh, the word there, there's a word that shows up in this verse twice. It's hagiozo, all right? So it's like this Greek word that means to make holy, to be sanctified. But the word consecrate and the word sanctify are the exact same word. Now that's significant for me because when I'm reading this and I hear, I consecrate myself, I think, man, he has been set aside 
for this specific task, specifically consecrated to give up his life and lay down his life on the cross. When I think consecrate, I think, oh man, he gave himself, set himself apart. He gave himself up to death. Just like Philippians 2 talks about when Paul preaches the gospel to us there. He said, like, man, he laid down his life to the point of death. It says that he literally became a doulos, a slave. A slave to humanity is what Philippians 2 says. So when he's saying, I consecrate myself, it's the same thing. He's saying, I sanctify myself. He's saying, I'm setting myself apart. I'm becoming holy. I'm becoming completely opposite of the world that I've been sent to. Because the world, what does it say in Romans 5? Man, for a good person, somebody might dare to die. But nobody dies for sinners. Nobody dies for those that don't deserve it. Jesus does. Guys, this is important. Because the first step in appreciating our sanctification is recognizing that you and I didn't deserve it. Like we we were not inherently worth it. There's nothing in us that would have made us worth the Son of God coming to earth and giving up his life. But you know what? Thankfully, my definition of your worth and his definition of your worth are two very different things. And when he looks at you, he says, worth it. Not not after you change. Not after something remarkable happens in you. He says, worth it. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greatest news of all time. His assessment of your worth and my assessment of your worth are very different things. And his assessment of my worth and my own assessment of my worth are very different things. He consecrated himself. Set himself aside said at the end here, he died to teach us how to die, to lay our lives down. When it says that you are to be sanctified in the truth, it's saying you also are to be consecrated. To say, hey, Jesus, if you love me that much, if you would put that type of valuation on me, obviously he died most of all, first and foremost, for his Father's glory. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's you and I those who have come to faith in Christ. So, in light of that, we don't just get to sit back and say, God, thank you for the sacrifice you made. And this is one of those things, I, I feel like for a lot of my life, I, I grew up with a, a deep, deep appreciation for the gospel, a deep appreciation for what Christ had done for me. But there was something in me that missed, that missed the rest of Scripture that was, what I know what I've been saved from, but what have I been saved into? been saved from death into life. I've been saved from my sin into a righteousness that is not my own. I've been saved by the crucifixion of Jesus. What for? To teach me to be crucified with Christ. As the cross, the cross didn't stop 2,000 years ago. You and I have now been invited into a lifestyle that every day looks like self-sacrificing love at our expense to others' benefit. It's the most backward system. It's the ultimate place that you and I will be set apart from the world, that you and I will be different 
different from the world system around us. It says we're sanctified in truth. All right, we're sanctified in truth. This is one that I was loving, like, kind of diving into some of just these little nuances, these phrases, sanctified in truth. Because three chapters earlier, we learned something really unique about truth. All right, we learned that truth is not just kind of some idea. Truth is not like, oh, somebody who's, like, truth is not just honest things. Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, you realize truth is just a nickname for Jesus. That's it. Truth has no identity outside of him. When you're sanctified in truth, you're sanctified in Jesus. You're sanctified in the truth of who he says you are. And this is one of those lessons that, man, I, I feel like I'm, to be honest, there's a lot of times like when you, I come up here and I'm preaching and I'm like, you, you kind of want to like, have you ever noticed it's really easy to share stories that like have already had their really good conclusion? Like you already got to the finish line, it's a cool story, it sounds good, and you can wrap it up and have a nice bow on it. But to be honest, when I tell you all this stuff, like this is, this is for real like where I am right now. Like my own just pursuit of Jesus, of learning what it means to think like he thinks, to have the mind of Christ, what it means for me to live in the fullness of redemption. I'm asking, what, how the heck do I really live into this? That I'm sanctified in truth. The word says crazy things in Hebrews, like that he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. What it means to be sanctified in truth is that with a right assessment of who we are in view of the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. So like when I think I'm sanctified in truth. It's not just what I've been saved from. It's what I've been saved into. Perfected for all time, the one who is being sanctified, the one who is in the process of becoming more and more contrary to the world system as he becomes more and more like Christ. So I read this and I'm like, Lord, I want to know, like, how do I, how do I do, how do you make this practical? How do I practically truly see myself the way you see me for real like if you, you ever thought about that like that if if God sees you one way and you see yourself in another you're wrong you, do you know that like that's that's gonna be one of the most important simple truths that you and I can ever live into as believers and lovers of God if I think one way about me and God thinks another my way needs to repent and submit to his way of thinking He's never been wrong in the course of all of human history, and he's not going to start with his opinion of you. How does he see me? Thankfully, that's not some vague apparition idea. He makes it very concrete. He tells me. He tells me who I am in light of the gospel. He tells me what I've been saved from, and he also tells me what I've been saved into. One of the simple passages of Scripture that I go to all the time to really make this practical is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. All right, Galatians 2, verse 20. And if there's one of these verses that you're going to get to, like, really dive into on the scavenger hunt that I'm sending this on, then make it this one. Galatians 2, 20. It's where Paul has the audacity to say something as ridiculous as, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so I don't know if you're like me. I remember I was that verse when I was like a little dude. Um, I think my mom had, a, had a, a song to it to make it really easy to commit to memory. So like I, I love that verse. It's been one of my favorite passages of scripture. But it's just in the last few years that I realized how to, 
that that's a very, very practical invitation. Not just to appreciate the cross, but to realize that I'm called to reenact it. Okay, so how do we make that practical? All right, for instance, for instance, like, is I'm thinking about what it means for me to go into work on a Monday or to go into school, okay? I would think to myself, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no, long, it's no longer I who walks into the office on Monday, but Christ in me who walks in the office. And the walking into the office that I do in the flesh, I do by faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who's going to school, but Christ within me who's now getting the privilege and opportunity of stepping into every classroom I go into. And the walking into classrooms that I do in the flesh, I do by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified, guys. I've been crucified. I'm I'm, I'm gone. There's already already an end point on the other side of the dash on my tombstone. Like, I have a a good friend. He's been here to preach a couple of times. Guy named Zach Meercreeps. He's an amazing man of God. I love that dude. He was sending me videos of encouragement this morning um, before I preached and stuff. And uh, I love Zach. And uh, Zach was born into a, a deeply Orthodox Jewish home. And they were pretty, his family was pretty intense about their, their Orthodoxy. And so uh, when he came to Jesus in high school, they went so far as to actually have a funeral for him. And he has a headstone that has a date on the other side that was the day he met Jesus. Okay, he told me that, and I thought, man, obviously, like, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to have, like, family turn against you that way, but also to die to one family just to be resurrected into another, into another that knows how to love selflessly. And, guys, I was, I was thinking about that today, like, man, in some ways, I'm kind of jealous. I'm jealous that... In some ways, I just wish there was a place. I wish there was a field that I could walk to, and it would have my name, it would have the day of my birth, and then it would have the day that I got saved so that I could realize and recognize, Kurt, you you died that day. You came into newness of life. You You were resurrected, absolutely. But like the old manners of thought, the old way of viewing myself, the principles of this world, they, they died that day. And if you're in Christ... Because you've already got a date on the other side of that dash. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been sent just like he is sent. You've been consecrated, sanctified, set apart for one simple purpose. Not just that you would appreciate all the effects of his shed blood and his resurrection, but that you would reenact it. What's next? Next thing we're going to do is dive into that verse 20. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is like one of my favorite moments in the Bible where he says, this is like where, where we become Bible characters. All right, so the one thing I want you to take note of, I want to invite you back into the timeline for just a second. So if you hadn't been with us um, for the last couple months, or is it now over a year that we've been in John? We've got to be flirting with it. We're getting close, all right? We've been in John for a long while, okay? I tried to, I told Andrew that I wanted to do I wanted to literally go one verse at a time, like one verse a week through John 17. I loved it so much. But he was like, bro, you're going to be like, you're going to be a grandfather before we get through the, the gospel of John. And so I was like, okay, all right, we'll, we'll skip through a few things. So John 17, there's this moment where he begins to invite us to pray a very illogical prayer. And the reason it's so illogical is because of what happened before and what's about to take place in the next chapter. So we've got, the, we got that hindsight that's 2020. We know what's coming. And Jesus says... He says, 
in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Okay, so here's what happens here. He says, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for the fruit of their ministry. Now, why is that such a statement of faith? Because what's about to happen, I'll just walk you through the timeline, okay? Right now, Jesus is praying. He's praying for himself first, for his disciples, then for us. What's happening at the same time? The disciples that he's praying for are napping. They're napping when he needs them most. He even goes back, wakes them up, okay? He's like, guys, I really need you right now. I need you to be contending for me. Never been a more... Never been a more volatile time in all of human history, actually. And you've got a front row seat. Just need one thing from you. Don't nap. Pray. They nap. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening as this prayer is being prayed. Then, right after this, they're going to wake up. They're going to cross the Kidron Valley. They're going to be interrupted by a platoon of soldiers led by Judas. And the leader of that platoon is going to walk up. And Peter is going to be there and see what's happening. And he is going to grab a sword. And he's going to swipe. Now, If you know the story, he ends up getting the guy's ear. But it's important to note, Peter was not such an incredible and exquisite swordsman that he could aim for ears and knock them off. He was aiming for a head, and he missed. Okay? So, like, he chops this guy's ear off, and in order to save Peter's life, Jesus grabs the ear and puts it back on. Okay? That's what happens in this moment. So, like, he's praying for these guys. I pray for the fruit of their ministry. I pray for the incredible things that they're going to do. And in the next 24 hours, they're going to nap at the most volatile time in human history. They're going to have, be guilty of attempted murder. They're all going to flee except for one. And even the one that kind of finally goes, or um, Peter, who goes to the site where Jesus is going to be tried, he denies him three times. And just to make sure, just to make sure that he had covered all their sin bases on the last one, he actually drops a number of expletives. And then... They're going to spend the next seven weeks post-resurrection. They're going to see a resurrected Jesus, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to doubt. To the point that when we get the Great Commission, the verses right before the Great Commission, the great sending out of the kingdom of God to disseminate all all over the world, you know what it's going to say? It says, they all gathered to worship him, but some of them doubted. They're looking at a resurrected Jesus, and some of them are faking it. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because I need you to know how ridiculous this prayer is going to look for the next seven weeks. I pray for the fruit of their labor. No one, no one was going to watch these men and think that it would have been a wise decision to leave the responsibility of gospel proclamation and kingdom multiplication in their hands. Nobody. And guys, the thing that it's important for us to recognize, Jesus isn't confident in his disciples either, but he is confident in his spirit. And this, this is the great difference maker. The great difference maker, not just in the life of 11 men, 11 young guys that were going to have the greatest responsibility in all of human history passed on to them. Guys, it's your story and mine too. The only shot we've got is his spirit to come and do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's a slide that's going to pop up here. It's going to just have John 17, 20. 
And this is just an invitation for you, just something to reflect on. This, uh, I remember I was reading this one time and had this thought, like, this is the moment I become a Bible character. Because he says, I don't just pray for them, but I pray for the ones who are going to come to know me because of their ministry. And guys, that's you. And that's me. Because his spirit was so good at doing what he does. The gospel went all over the world. And eventually it crossed oceans. It crossed cultural boundaries and barriers. And finally, it came to a land that when this was written, there was no awareness of. And for you and I, it's wild because so many of us would even think of this country as we've been called a Christian nation. But guys, this when he says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, you're sitting in them. You're sitting in the definition of the uttermost parts of the earth. You made it. And the gospel made it here. And his spirit, if you walk with him, if you know him, if you've been brought from death to life, if his cross is not just something that you've reflected on and appreciated, but it's something you've begun to share by the way that you live and sacrificial love, then guys, you can insert your name here. But also for Kurt, who will believe in me through their word. And now we kind of come to our grand finale. And that's my invitation to you to respond by praying some impossible prayers. Guys, like Jesus here at the end, not only are these guys going to be an utter disappointment in so many ways for the next seven weeks, but like then Jesus would begin to pray things over them that honestly even seem outlandish when I think of my own life. He says, may they not just be one. May they be one like father and son are one. May they enjoy Trinitarian type unity in the kingdom of God. I'm going to read you a passage. It's the way Paul kind of reflects on this. All right. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to skip ahead a couple verses to 11 through 16. He says this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Guys, he's praying an impossible prayer. For you to be one and to set aside your own pride and selfishness, to live so sacrificially in love to those around you that it just becomes completely illogical and maybe even to the point where everyone else, everyone else around you would say that's impossible. And they'll have to know the only way that somebody would live at the expense of themselves to the benefit of others without hope of return would be a sacrificial love would be a cross 
type love. So that, you guys, everything changes here. Everything. This is wild because he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Guys, he, he directly correlates the lost world's belief in the gospel to our unity. That's, I'll be honest, like, if this, if I didn't have the proof text here, that would make me uncomfortable. That he would tie in the effectiveness of the gospel to the unity that the bride displays to the world. The one good thing that I was reflecting on that's the, the good news in this for you and I is, man, we are in a world divided. I'm talking like division has become like startling. There is, there's no more like in between a medium. It is one way or the other. It is Fox News or CNN. You know, like you've got, there is a divide in our culture that is like so intense that like if you are going to live in such a way that you sacrificially live, it's going to stick out maybe more than it ever has. So the good news is you're called to unity in a place of division. So if you want to stick out, man, just stare at the cross. That's it. And now the invitation. The invitation for you to pray impossible prayers. Because the crazy thing about this is what we know from the stories that are going to follow that are going to follow the gospel into the book of Acts, into the Pauline journeys, into all the epistles, into everything we see in the rest of the New Testament, is this prayer got answered. That's crazy. This prayer got answered. I'm not going to read them to you, but you all can go later on and look at Acts 4, 31 to 35, and Hebrews 10, 32 to 35, when it talks about the fact that people are just beginning to like sell their property in their homes in order to take care of the saints. In 32 through 35, it says, it says, some of you went to prison, but even those of you who didn't go to prison, you received the plundering of your, of your property with joy because you had found a better inheritance. Because this, this, produces, this produces a relationship with the world that just feels so temporary that things just don't hurt like they do with, in other people. He says it in Scripture. He says, we're not going to grieve like those who have no hope. Um, kind of invited you. My, I've told you some stories in the past couple months about my grandfather, um, William Noah Simpkins, um, 81 years old. I told you he was one of the most bitter men I'd ever known in my life. And just in the past few years, began to see his heart soften and some things change. And a couple weeks ago, my mom got up here, Grammy Pammy, for those of you who know her. Um, she got up to give an announcement and shared about what the Lord had done and her dad's heart and the way that that had grown. Her faith had just been such an encouragement to her. And uh, it was sweet. Uh, the Lord gave me a song um, six years ago, a song called One I Thought You Couldn't Change. And the Lord had asked me. I was in, just in prayer in my living room one day, and I sensed the, sensed the whisper of the Spirit. Just be like, you should get out your guitar and write a prophetic song about your grandpa's salvation. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> honestly... That was probably of all the prayers that I could think to pray, that was the one that felt most impossible. I thought, no way. I, I know God can do a lot of amazing things, but I cannot imagine him changing that man's heart. And then I actually just found out yesterday, um, he, I was talking to my mom about what kind of happened in his life. And my little niece, Elise, who's sitting there in her mom's lap, um, her story of survival at birth was just a story of supernatural intervention on the hand of God. 
And after he watched that, he went to my grandmother one day and he said, I can no longer, I can no longer claim that God's not real after what I've seen. And if he's real, then I have to get to know him. And he did. And at that point, he was mostly, mostly bedridden, honestly. There wasn't a lot of, he wasn't really able to get out. He's on oxygen. He's had emphysema for years, spent years in the coal mines. And finally, um, yesterday, his, his testimony in a lot of ways came to a conclusion. And he passed away yesterday morning. And it was so unique because as I heard that news, there's, you know, just, there's a number of different emotional responses, you know. But ultimately, I felt like the thing that was probably foremost in my mind was hope. And it was, Lord, I'm so grateful so grateful that I got to watch this story unfold in the past few months, um, especially the, the last thing. I'd, I was going to visit him multiple times this week, and just with him being sick and kind of being quarantined, my um, grandma had asked me not to, and so I didn't get to see him at the end, which at first I was so upset about. But then I realized, you know, the very last thing that I ever did with my grandfather was take communion. Because right before I left his house, the last time last month, he asked to take communion. And for us to pray. And guys, I was sitting there thinking, man, Lord, like, you, you really love to do impossible things. So you've got homework. I'm going to sing a song, and you all are going to do your homework, okay? One, you can listen. You can um, kind of check out the words on the screen if you'd like. I'd love that. But uh, the, the main thing I'd like for you to do is to make two lists in your mind. One, your expectations for your life. And two... Jesus' expectations for your life. I have up here on the screens what I told you at the very beginning. Guys, low expectations are not simply an unfortunate estimation of the God that we're serving. They're dangerously bad theology. Good litmus test for where you're at spiritually. Look at the things you ask God for. When you think about the things that you pray for, are they just to your advantage, things that are needs in your life? Or could somebody look at your prayer list and could they say, that person's serving a bigger God than I'm serving? When people look at your prayer list, do they find impossible things that could not happen unless you really believed you were serving a God for whom nothing was impossible?